Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John talks with Dr. Basma Momani, a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo, about Jordan's royal infighting and resultant political crisis. Then, John, Natasha, and I discuss Jordanians' reaction to the crisis. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Basma Motmani is a professor of political science at the University of Waterloo and one of Canada's leading experts on the Middle East. Basma, welcome to Babel. Thank you. So what's been going on in Jordan? Jordan hasn't been in the newspapers and suddenly it's all over the newspapers. Yeah, it went from the kingdom of boring to suddenly having this inner palace intrigue. It's been very interesting. And as you said, it doesn't really get often covered in a mainstream media. So what's happening in Jordan, I think what many have heard, and there's still a lot of mystery to the plot, if you will, is that there may have been an attempted coup d'etat in some form. Certainly, there's been a lot of messaging that both Prince Hamza, a very popular prince, a half-brother to the king, may have been implicit in some sort of plot. The part that becomes even more interesting is that perhaps there was also the involvement of Basim Awadullah, who used to be sort of a government insider and certainly he was an advisor the royal to court, King Abdullah of Jordan, yes, and has moved on to being an advisor now to the Saudis, Hamad bin Salman specifically, and also very much deep interests in the UAE. So, you know, you have this new interesting kind of variable in this conversation about a potential coup d'etat. And it's certainly, I think, raised a lot of concerns that there's some regional meddling, perhaps, and sort of undermining Jordanian stability. Do you think there was a a coup d'etat that was underway? You know, I have to say that as time goes on, there's more and more doubt than answers just because the plot literally thickens and there's more and more uncertainty about the objectives of every actor. But I don't see how, frankly, the connection between Hamza and Awadullah is made. That perhaps is the weakest link in the argument that's being presented or the narrative of the state. Certainly, this is not to say that I don't think Hamad bin Salman has ever been innocent and his foreign policies are quite literally disasters. I mean, he chooses fights that he can't win. So, you know, there's a pattern of behavior here where Hamad bin Salman is very much a loose cannon. I think we can't ignore that. There's lots of mystery to this. You know, why would MBS want to undermine Jordan? That's a big question mark. That's opened up a lot of avenues for conspiracy theories and grand design type arguments that are not clear to me or make sense, frankly, as an analyst. Is Mohammed bin Salman upset with King Abdullah because of other actions that preceded this particular situation? I don't understand why Mohammed bin Salman would want to do this now under Biden when MBS is clearly on thin ice with Biden. Why would he want to initiate this now? Why not under Trump when clearly there was a much cozier relationship? So there's a lot of really peculiar things to the story or to the narrative that's been given to us by the state that just provide more questions than answers. And there's, of course, this divide in Jordan that has been there for decades between the descendants of the East Bank tribes and the descendants of Palestinians who came from the West Bank of the Jordan. And one way that people have portrayed this is this is a sign that the East Bank tribes are increasingly dissatisfied with King Abdullah. Does that resonate with you? 
I think that fissure, not to discount it and say that it's not there, it's certainly there, but you know, it's weakened over time, partly because of demographics, intermarriages are high. And that's a story that perhaps could explain everything in Jordanian politics in the 1980s, but it's less and less, I think, an explanatory factor, to be frank. But, you know, to the question of today, look, certainly Hamza has popularity with the East Bank tribes. He visits them. He sits on the ground with the Bedouin tent. Let's just say he plays the part. I mean, he really does know how to charm them, engage with them, speak their dialect. I mean, you know, even the slang words that he uses. So he is popular amongst East Bank tribes. You can't ignore that. And, you know, I've often said that I could picture... King Abdullah, you know, be more comfortable in, you know, Amen elite circles, whereby Hamza is very comfortable, again, sitting in the salon of tribal elders talking about life. And that picture, I think, is one that one needs to think about in understanding why these two figures have different bases of support. But I would say, actually, Hamza's popularity has actually risen since his release of those videos. And in fact, it's now become not about East Bank and Palestinian Jordanians, but also about class. So I think he's now appealed to also a significant number of middle class urbanites as well, professionals who are really fed up of the corruption. So, you know, he, in fact, again, the unintended consequence or the self-defeating measure that the government did was to actually enhance his popularity and actually expand it into new segments of the population. Jordan is a, a relatively young demographic. Where are young people in all of this? Are they supporting the king who, who we all remember when he became king and was young and was a vigorous face? Does he retain support of young people or are young people supporting Hamza, who used to be crown prince and is no longer crown prince? Or are young people just disaffected with the whole system? Well, there's all of the above in some way. But I do think, remember here, if there's a consensus in Jordan is that nobody wants, quote unquote, regime change. I think there is even those that may be very concerned about, you know, Hamza's whereabouts today are certainly feel that Hamza spoke to their interests and his messaging resonates with them. I don't think many of them want to see an overthrow of the monarchy or that kind of chaos that comes with moving Abdullah and his crown prince son out to bring in Hamza. So I think that's a non-starter. You have to really start with the point that nobody wants that. But that's not to mean that Hamza is not popular. He's very popular and his popularity has gone up. On to the question of youth, the youth, I think, found Hamza's messaging to be very, very popular. I mean, it resonated with them. I mean, that wonderful BBC video that he leaked, which was the inflection point that increased his popularity, without a doubt, you know, he spoke to their concerns. I mean, he really had a way of tone and being respectful, but blunt at basically saying, Where's the corruption? Stop telling us it's in the petty corruption or that the problem is that Jordanians don't want to work. It's in the big league corruption. It's in the crony capitalism. It's in the, the lack of transparency. It's in the favoritism that the regime plays to basically play off different interests. I mean, I think he really hit a nerve. And I think the class dimension now makes more sense than the East Bank and Palestinian dimension. And youth, of course, are very much disadvantaged today in Jordan. As you said, they're the majority. But the reality is their unemployment was one of the lowest, regionally speaking, they're one of the lowest. And now it's doubled. I mean, the Jordanian government released a statistics that it went from 
approximately 12 or 13 percent unemployment to double that. That's the official numbers. We know that that's actually underreporting the reality. And youth have always traditionally had double the unemployment rates of the national average. So you can just see where for young people who are increasingly educated, feel very confident about their intellect and their grasp of the situation, recognize that meritocracy is not working in the country. There's no appreciation for meritocracy. It's all about WASTA. It's all about networks. It's all about who's your father. And they're frustrated. They're frustrated because their individualism is not being recognized. And so that's a system of poor governance. It's a system of corruption and nepotism that pervades the entire state structure and at the end of the day, Hamza spoke to that, and that resonated. But Hamza is the son of a king who looks like his father. It seems like an unlikely advocate of meritocracy, and it's about individualism and who you really are, because everything Hamza is, is because of who his father was and how much he resembles somebody else, not how much he's his own person. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, yes, certainly the resemblance and the reminder of the late King Hussein certainly resonates. But no, I think that Hamza also, you know, if you look at, and it could be very much by design in terms of messaging, I'm not undermining the argument that this could be very much a, you know, Hamza is cultivating an image, right? But what is out there are videos of him sitting with Bedouins on the floor, speaking to them, eating their food, quite literally sitting in their salons, he looks humble. I mean, there's this one interesting video of him with his daughter where he's praying and his daughter kind of comes behind him and hits him. And if you look at the background of his living situation, it looks humble. I mean, it actually doesn't look like very different than the average man home. The furniture didn't look lavish. It didn't look fancy. And again, you have to contrast that with the image of the king and his family, which again, look more regal, look more fancy, elegant, you name it. But Hamza actually has this imagery of looking like a humble guy. And that's the kind of image that the Jordanians have been seeing with these releases of videos and kind of recollections of a lot of people. But again, as you think about what the tribes represent, it seems to me the tribes don't represent individualism and meritocracy. The tribes represent you belong and the group will protect you. And it's all about the collective identity. And it strikes me as something of a tension that somebody would be popular with the tribes and also be seen as the person who would meet aspirations of individualism. I agree 100%. And so it's like he speaks to two audiences, right? So on the individuals of meritocracy, it's very much to the youth. It's very much a class argument. But again, for the East Bankers, what he said, and the BBC video was very instructive of this too, is saying, where is the corruption that everybody talks about? Stop blaming the public sector. Stop blaming the little guy who is a teacher that gets a salary of three to $400. That's not where the corruption is, because that's what the messaging of the state is. You know, the public sector is bloated. It's bloated because of the tribes. It's bloated because the public sector is absorbing all of the staff because of nepotism in the tribal community, because we know that the public sector is bloated. We know that the public sector is more staffed by East Bank Jordanians than Palestinian Jordanians. So there is this argument that the state has said, and it's very much a neoliberal argument, right? It's that the public sector is the problem. That's where the state budget is saddled. It's because of all of these expenses in the public sector. What we need is more private sector. We need more innovation here. We need more entrepreneurship, which suggests that the private sector is the rising star and the public sector is the dullard. 
And frankly, East bankers say, wait a minute, that's not where the corruption is. And Hamza said the exact same words. Is that where the corruption is? Is there the corruption in the petty corruption of the public sector? Or is it in the big table of land deals and crony capitalism and importers who are friends of the political elite who are preventing true competition? I mean, so he basically flipped it and questioned the state narrative of neoliberal arguments that the public sector is not the problem. It's the problem of redistribution of wealth. And I've spoken to Jordanians, especially in the military, which is almost entirely people descended from East Bank tribes, said, look, we built the state while it's the Palestinian population that was busy making money. And they saw themselves as servants of building the state while the Palestinians were self-interested. That, to me, highlights what you said was actually diminishing this sense of East Bank, West Bank division. But it sounds like that rift is still very much there with people blaming the public sector, which is seen as blaming the tribes, which is seen as reinforcing that division because there is that lopsided representation of East Bank Jordanians in the public sector and West Bank Jordanians in the private sector. I agree with that analysis 100%. I think that though Hamza's messaging now appeals to more than just the East Bank. I think that's my argument. My argument now is that he's captured a new constituency, and that includes socioeconomic disadvantaged ones, again, more of a class analysis than a identity analysis. One thing I also want to touch on is the impact of COVID-19 on Jordan. Jordan seemed to have been doing an exemplary job through the summer and then has had an incredible spike. Cases have gone up, hospitals are overwhelmed. To what extent is this wave of COVID-19 hitting Jordan belatedly, feeding into the politics in Jordan? Oh, I think it's very, very important because the economy is suffering. It's struggling. You know, when you look at the prevalence rate of the virus is at some point, the government was saying it's at 20%. I mean, that's an incredible Number. So I agree with you. Where at the beginning they were effective in controlling it and having quite literally troops on the streets to prevent anybody going out. They actually even, I believe, arrested an MP for bypassing the stay at home orders. I mean, so they were very, very effective at the beginning. But I think, like many, many countries, particularly developing countries, when they recognized that this was going to take so long, they really realized that it was at a cost of the economy. It was the reality that they have a huge informal sector, probably underreported, which are effectively day laborers. So they have a choice of they go out and make money to eat or they don't. And at the end of the day, they don't have that kind of social safety net where they could, as we saw in the United States and Canada, where, you know, you could dispense checks to individuals to sustain themselves. I mean, they don't have that kind of capacity. The fiscal room isn't there. So absolutely, I think it aggravated things. They are still under an IMF arrangement, which, you know, they've, at least the messaging coming from the IMF has been, don't worry about fiscal consolidation for now, spend what you can, as the MD of the IMF said, just keep the receipts. But the government recognizes that it can't incur this much debt. And so I think it gave up on the levers of trying to control the virus. I mean, it puts in measures like wear a mask and the rest of it, and a lot of public health messaging. But In terms of stay-at-home orders, you know, they can't afford what New Zealand or Australia did. So final question, do you feel that this is the beginning of a long muddling through process? Or do you think we have seen fault lines here which are going to provoke a real change of some kind in Jordan? 
I mean, I do hope that the government and the monarchy take the frustrations seriously and address them with a real attempt at rooting out corruption, a real attempt at transparency of budgeting and transparency throughout. I think that's what the people need and want. You need to dispel the public sentiment that there is a redistribution challenge here, that there is corruption at the very top, and be blunt about where the money is going so that people feel comforted in the messaging coming from the government. I don't think there's going to be the kind of change and protest that we saw in the Arab Spring in the neighboring countries, partly because, one, they're living the reality of refugees coming to them. Jordanians are very conscious of saying very loud and clear, we don't want to be Syria, we don't want to be Iraq. In fact, that trope, if you will, has kept the country away from protesting and asking for the kind of change it wants because it really fears the consequences of disintegration of the state and what could happen. And because of that fault line, as you said, there is an East Bank and Palestinian-Jordanian fault line. I don't think it's nearly as aggravated as it was 20, 30 years ago, but it's there. And people fear that civil wars are not far away. Look what happened in Iraq. You know, Baghdad had 30% of its population intermixed between Sunni and Shiite. And still, we saw that kind of civil war. So that's not far from the minds of most Jordanians. Nobody wants to see that. And so people are very mindful of where this could go if they continue to push for change. But I don't think they're satisfied. You can't look at the absence of street protests as somehow a satisfaction of the Jordanian people today. They're very unhappy. They very much don't have faith in their government to get them out of the economic mess. And the economic crisis post-COVID is a disaster. I mean, it really is going to be a disaster. It's a disaster globally. And for a country like Jordan that is so dependent on external flows of capital, that is a recipe for even further disaster. So it needs to address it. And I hope it addresses it through the levers of political inclusion and good governance, because that's going to keep the country together. But where using levers of repression may be attractive to the state, it certainly isn't going to get them where they need to go. Besma Mokmini, thanks for joining us on Babel. Pleasure. Next up, John, Natasha, and I discuss Jordanians' reaction to the crisis. So how have Jordanians of all backgrounds expressed their discontent with the status quo over the past several years? Frankly, I think most people, regardless of their background, express discontent with whispers and side conversations with trusted friends and family in Jordan. However, there is a really strong protest culture in the country as well. Usually it's ministers or the prime minister that gets sort of the ire of protesters that are typically unhappy with economic reforms. But there's also other protests about lack of water, recently a natural gas deal signed with a company in Israel, or last year with teachers not getting promised pay increases. But the king is usually off limits for any of these protests. But then again, everyone knows who's really in power. And in case they forget, the kings of Jordan have regularly dissolved parliament and reshuffled the cabinet. The year after the huge protests in 2018, the cabinet was reshuffled four times in just over a year. So the cycle sort of goes, there's an austerity measure imposed, there's protests, some reforms are kind of delayed or watered down, and then people go back to normal for a bit, and then it's sort of rinse and repeat. That said, I think that there has been instances where it's been a bit different. For example, the protests last year, you saw teachers and the leaders of the teachers union that were arrested 
and the teachers union was actually dissolved. And I think that that caused a lot of discontent amongst the population. And you saw things in the early years of King Abdullah's reign, including in Man in the southern desert. And people forget that the government actually cracked down quite heavily on this area. And they sort of blamed it on, you know, Islamist or terrorist elements. But when I was staying in Ma'an, people told a different story. And that was a story that you heard Prince Hamza talking about. And they talked about how the closure of the Iraqi border after the U.S. invasion really killed their economy, which was quite dependent on trucking to the country. And at the time, people also talked about what if Prince Hassan were king or Prince Hamza? And I think that that points to sort of the government's also knee-jerk reaction to blame dissent on terrorists or on foreign elements as well. You know, we often see elections as the way that people's grievances are redressed. I think in Jordan, what I've seen is a pattern where people protest. There's often an effort to give people jobs or some other sort of government largesse and buying people's acquiescence off that way. The consequence is the government feels that it's always in the process of trying to buy off the public. And one of the reasons why government spending is so high is because that's the way the government deals with political discontent. And the reason people protest is because the only way to get stuff is to protest. And it sort of creates a cycle that we've seen time and time again in Jordan. Vesma suggested that the lack of a full uprising shouldn't be construed as satisfaction, but rather just as hesitation or concern over becoming the next Syria or Iraq. Have Jordanians reacted to this crisis in a way that shows that? You know, I think, first of all, that that basic idea of people fearing their country will fall into crisis is tremendously widespread in the Middle East. I think you still have it in Egypt. You certainly have it as people look at Libya. You look at as people look at what happened in Yemen. You look at what happened in Iraq. I mean, none of the Arab Spring revolutions has been a tremendous success. And Tunisia is the only one that you could argue has really made much progress at all. And many Tunisians would argue it hasn't. So I think that fear of chaos, the fear of falling into the trap, especially of Syria, where there seems to be no end in sight for a lot of Syrians, I think is a tool that governments use to try to keep people quiet, keep people in the system. I don't think it's the only thing going on in Jordan, but certainly Jordan has hundreds of thousands of refugees from Syria, from Iraq, from Libya, from other places. You can't escape the fact in Jordan that being a refugee is a possibility. And a lot of Jordanians are very cautious of tipping Jordan into that kind of instability, whatever they think about the government. They don't want to risk chaos. Yeah, I totally agree with John here. I think that the fear is very real. You saw the reaction to the 2005 hotel bombings in Jordan and the Jordanian pilot that was actually burned alive by ISIS in Syria. And that really affected Jordanians to this day. And Jordanians certainly don't want to be dragged into that kind of turmoil. But one thing I do want to note on that is that those incidents also show that people can be more affected by something that happens closer to home than something that happens across the border. And I think sometimes it just takes a spark or a clumsy attempt to put out a small fire that can sort of cause a conflagration. (laughs) Bashar al-Assad's regime reacted very poorly to initial protests, I would say, and signs of dissent in southern Syria especially. And his security elements were not reined in. 
People got very angry because they tortured children. They alluded to raping people's wives. I mean, that didn't fly with southern tribes in Syria, and that wouldn't fly with tribes in Jordan either. And, you know, some people would argue that the security elements in Jordan are more disciplined than that. Are they more disciplined to not shoot on peaceful protesters? Yeah, I would say so. But to rough up kids or insult people, I think that they're definitely capable of that. I guess my point is that when you have these long simmering grievances under a tight lid, these things can spiral very quickly out of control. And it's not always rational or linear. I'm sure Syrians, Iraqis, Libyans, Lebanese, I could keep going. They also didn't want what they got. Would it be different for Jordan for an assortment of reasons? Yeah, probably, but not necessarily. So I think that the government, the way that it deals with these instances, these perhaps small instances are going to be really crucial for making sure that it doesn't reach a crisis. Our upcoming report, Sustainable States, talks about a common thread of a trust deficit between citizens and their governments. In that case, as it relates to the provision of services, but I think it applies in this case as well into a more political crisis. How do you think that deficit of trust is manifested in what we're looking at today? Hamza's commentary was all about the need of the government to perform better, to get rid of corruption. I mean, in many ways, he validated so many of the concerns that so many Jordanians have, which they feel are confirmed by the kinds of things we talked about in the report, that electricity isn't always reliable, that water isn't always reliable, that you can't trust the government to do what the government has promised to do, what the government's responsible to do. And when you can't trust the government to do anything, then you have to take matters into your own hands. I think what we were trying to do in the report was seeing if environmentally sustainable solutions to public utilities not only create more reliability, but create patterns of behavior between governments and citizens that bring citizens in more to the process, that give them more accountability, gives the government more accountability, creates patterns of behavior that can address what I think we've seen in Jordan is this trust that the government isn't out to serve us. The government is enriching the people in the government, and that's wrong. Yeah. And just to build on that point for something that I think everyone understands is a really important issue for Jordan in particular is water. Jordan is the second most water scarce country in the world by some measures. The country's per capita water supply is only 10% of the level that the United Nations defines as water poverty. I mean, you actually have people hijacking government infrastructure in the north until they get water. But at the same time, you have farmers growing bananas and exporting citrus. So I think in people's minds, this is one small example of a lot of other examples of people seeing the rich getting richer, breaking the rules to get richer, and they're struggling more than ever before because you have these small farmers who've tried their best with water conservation, but they're still going out of business. And then you have big landowners who have made a living growing water-intensive crops in Jordan for export, and they're still profitable somehow. So I think for a lot of people, this kind of encapsulates a lot of the issues that Prince Hamza was speaking to. And it goes from water scarcity to tax collection. If you're a poor public sector employee, you're having taxes automatically taken from your paycheck. If you're a teacher, you're making 400 bucks a month. But the people who are at the top, the very rich, aren't paying any taxes. So I think right now you're seeing a system that's kind of 
breaking down. It's becoming bankrupt because everyone at every level is taking what they can. What we hear a lot in the Middle East is there are different rules for different people. As Natasha said, wealthy people don't have to play by the rules. Wealthy people can make money getting by the rules and the burden is on everybody else. There's a perception that if you're close to the government, you can do whatever you want and you help enrich the people in government. And if you're far from the government, you're suffering. That creates not respect for government, it creates disrespect for government. And one of the things we're trying to look at in the report is, are there ways to change those understandings that the governments can take using utilities to change the way people relate to their own governments? Yeah. And I think what it does is essentially we're taking small steps towards reforms. So looking at people who are on the periphery that don't have enough water, for example, or don't have good waste management in their areas. And how can you reach out to them and speak with them about their discontent with you know, basic services? It could even be education, healthcare. In this report, we specifically discuss water, electricity, and waste management, which are all incredibly important issues in Jordan, and trying to identify how you can build those bridges between the central government and the people at large by trying to ensure that any kind of project that takes place, whether it's a wastewater management project, a waste management project, or a solar PV field, whatever that is, it is trying to build on the inclusive participation and development of the entire country to ensure that there's job opportunities for people as well. And I would just note, just specific to Jordan, since we're talking about Jordan, we talk about other countries in the report, but corruption, wasting water, vested interests in the energy sector, none of this is rare. This doesn't make Jordan unique. But what makes Jordan unique, and this is why I don't understand why people find it boring, is that Jordan doesn't have an atom. It doesn't have a molecule of room to screw up. It has virtually no water. It's increasingly dependent on outside money and support with strings attached. In some parts of the country, you know, 90% of the population is employed by the public sector. And it still imports 90% of its energy needs in a really tumultuous region. And all of these things make it incredibly vulnerable. And so what we try to argue is that there are these small steps that you can take to make Jordan a little bit less vulnerable, to build back that trust, and that that could have great strides for Jordan's future if the government tries to open up a little bit and use its human resources a bit better. Natasha and John, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Danny. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.